As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. We weren't actually together on the podcast last week. I was at Disneyland with my family for a few days, but we actually did see each other in person. We had dinner in Anaheim, my family, our our friends who came with us, and your family, and I got to see firsthand what you've been telling me about for a long time. I got to quiz your son, your five-year-old son, Ben, on random football scores of various college football games. Yeah, his grasp of numbers and stuff like that is very different. I mean, when I was a little kid, I was really into sports. Names, he's pretty good. He knows who Aaron Donald is. He knows who Alvin Kamara is. But it's the scores and stuff like that where it's like one day, literally, he was like, can we watch the game when Ohio State beat Alabama? And my wife and I looked at each other like, was he even born when this happened? How did he even know? And then he spit out the score and knew what it was. So we had to go watch the highlights at dinner. I guess we didn't have to on my phone because he must have seen it with his with his grandfather on on an iPad uh, when I was out of town, apparently. So it's cool when you're when you're kid especially if it's your son is so into sports but he's pretty far down the rabbit hole at this point and he's particularly in the college football i asked him ohio state washington he got that i asked him clemson alabama he got that and the funny thing is like those games had some pretty random scores right you know it's not every not many college football games are 44 to 16 and he nailed all of them so it was something to behold yeah um it's going to be interesting to see so as he gets further on uh further on down the road he doesn't quite understand you know the quarter system not in school necessarily but like wait there's two minutes left in this basketball game no there's only two minutes left in a quarter Ben. and he's kind of figuring that stuff out but it is fun the only downside is i'm watching the nba finals he's into it and our daughter is not into it so she feels like he's getting to watch a quarter a show so she should be entitled to a peppa pig episode or something and which makes me feel like i'm missing out if my wife's like well it's like we have to turn the TV off to, to honor her, and that's that's not fair. Anyway, no, so let's I, get I on feel to you. This. I, I've, I've been watching a lot of the NBA Finals on, on delay because they conflict with when I put my daughter to bed. Anyway, yeah, so 
For this week's episode, we're bringing on a uh, familiar guest, if you've been listening for a long time, Derek Crocker, VP of College Sports at Fox. We love talking to him about how the games get scheduled. So we're going we're gonna to talk to Derek, and then we have to catch up on your emails. We have an overflowing inbox of emails uh, stored up from the last few weeks. So let's get to it. We're pleased to be joined by a friend of the program, previous guest, Derek Crocker. He's the VP of college sports at Fox Sports. And most importantly, when your favorite team, when you find out your favorite team's kicking off at 7.30 or on this date on Fox or FS1, he's the one who made that happen. He is the scheduling guru. Derek, thanks for joining us again. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me. So we want to go behind the curtain here a little bit. You've been nice enough to do this before, but... Let's just do a little refresher first for people. So, you know, last week, the networks announced their various early season kickoff times the first three or four weeks. The Fox and ESPN share the rights to the Big Ten, the Pac-12, the Big 12. So you guys do a draft to figure out who gets which games. Give us a little primer how the draft works. So the, like you mentioned, we just got through the first phase. It's really kind of a two-part, two two-phase draft. So the first phase just wrapped up. We, we announced those first three weeks and some of the special date weekday games last Thursday. But that first phase really starts in um, kind of after the national championship game and goes all the way up until until the release date. And and that draft process, it's I compare it a lot. I think I've done on this on this podcast as well. It's like it's playing like it's like the greatest game of uh, fantasy football, but instead of you know like my you know the ten dollar buy in or or whatever it is, it's uh, you know the buy in is you know, millions of dollars. And instead of actually picking players, it's, uh, we're actually selecting matchups on certain weeks, or I'd say, not say matchups, but your pick order on a certain week. So this first phase of the draft, it's determining the pick order on those various weeks. So it's think about uh, maybe the last, so maybe like the, say the number one pick, it's not necessarily like the number one pick in the draft. It's not necessarily you're picking a specific matchup. You're picking a, a slot like the number one pick on a certain week. So like maybe like a quick example would be like where we had, uh, we just announced last week, we have the Ohio state Michigan game. So that's the number one pick on November 30th. So, and then as you kind of get into the next phase of the draft, which is the second phase, and that actually happens during the season. And it's a, kind of on a 12 day or six day selection process is where you're actually locking in those matchups um, so you're picking in, or you're picking a, a game for that, that certain slot that you selected in that first phase of the draft. It's a kind of an inter- interesting process. Um, we do it, as you mentioned, with all the, with ESPN and all the other network partners for each conference. It's probably one of my favorite parts of the job, and it's, uh, it's always a thing I, I really look forward to. Hey, Derek, how much do you guys evaluate what ESPN's inventory around a certain game or weekend is let's say i'm sure that it's no secret that you know full disclosure obviously I, I work at fox but that we have the world series and so they they would have a better grasp i would think of what you know how our schedule plays out like how much is there not just self-scouting but knowing the strategy that relates to what each specific company, how they're trying to leverage certain things, how much goes into that? I mean, there's obviously a ton of factors, but it, that is obviously one of the one of the factors that we that we look at on, you know, for every single weekend is you know what is what is our competitors doing, what's best for our schedule. So you know that's it's kind of part of the the strategy. Also, it, 
at um, that we're kind of implementing this year is, uh, is we're going to do put some more better games or our best or better games at the noon time slot on the broadcast channel, and that'll be kind of a little bit of a shift for us. Previously, we've done we've done several games in the past. Um, in that noon window, we've seen just because it's competitively, it's a little bit softer than say the 3:30 or the prime time slot, and we've we've seen ratings that are prime time worthy in the noon window. So we think there's there's a real opportunity for us to to really kind of own that time slot and see really good uh, viewership uptake from there. I'm glad you brought that up, Derek. That actually made some some headlines a couple weeks ago when you guys discuss, first discussed that. So when you guys say you're going to be shifting some of your better games to noon. Does that mean like basically that becomes the Gus Joel game, uh, Gus Joel and Jenny game, or will that vary by the, like in other words, will they still do primetime games as well? You know, what, what is the kind of the packaging of this look like? Great question. So I don't assign that actually the talent, the talent to the specific games, but I can tell you that, I mean, that crew typically does the best game um, of our day. So in our, and on most weekends, that game will should be the noon window. So I would see, I, I would I assume that probably Gus and Jenny and Joel will be on a lot of those noon, uh, those noon kickoffs. You know, at the end of the day, I think they also want to be on best, you know, the most rate, highest rated game. And so sometimes that may not, may or may not be the noon window. But for the most part, I would I would assume they're probably going to be on a lot of those noon games. So just a quick follow up to that. I assume you're not going to be putting like a UCLA Washington game on at 9 a.m. Pacific, right? So how how's the Pac-12 factor into that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, just, you know, logistically, we Pac-12 games can't play on at, at, at 9 as you mentioned. So there'll be still games in primetime, primetime Eastern, so the 8 o'clock slot, or there'll be sometimes coming out of the noon, those noon Eastern windows, so like a 3.30 or 4 o'clock slot. I think in the first three weeks, uh, we have a couple of those games that are coming right out of the noon window, whether it's the Northwestern Stanford game or the Nebraska Colorado game. Um, those are both coming right af- after the noon window um, at 3:30 or 4 o'clock. And then we also have a, a UCLA or Oklahoma at UCLA game, which is at um, going to be at 8 o'clock, um, like in the third week of the season. So they'll be they'll be kind of utilizing the kind of lead in of that of that strong noon game. Let me ask you a question on this. You mentioned the Northwestern Stanford game. It's obviously Two schools have had a lot of success recently. Northwestern won its division last year. Stanford, you know, has been good really for the last decade. Having said that, though, you know, it's not like Stanford has this raucous home game environment, especially in late August. That game's August 31st. But the game should be really competitive. Like, how do you what value do you put on something where it's like, okay, these schools don't have rabid, you know, Ohio State. Notre Dame, Alabama kind of fan bases, yet you there's a pretty good chance that game is going to be competitive for four quarters. So as a programmer and as a drafter, how do you value that compared to something that you may get a blowout in the first quarter, but it's a blowout by a big brand school against somebody who's probably not that competitive? Yeah, I mean, you, you laid out a, a lot of the you know, a lot of the factors that we that we really look into, and all those pieces, each game and each time slot is kind of analyzed on its own. But in terms of that specific game, I mean, I'm excited to see that game. I think it's going to be, like you mentioned, it's going to be a really competitive game, and that's that's part of the reason that we're uh, we're putting it on on the broadcast channel in that time slot is that we think you know compared to maybe some of the other games that are going on, that game may be the most could be the most competitive game in that window. So that may, if there's, may say, other blowouts going on, you know, going on throughout the day, 
people would turn into hopefully the most competitive game that's going on. So, and I think in terms of just both Northwestern and Stanford, even though they may not have the most rabid home fan bases, I think their football is compelling. They're, you know, both have, have traditionally been very good um, over this last, these last few years, especially Northwestern, obviously last year, getting to the championship game. So I'm excited to see how, you know, how that one plays out. There's some interesting storylines um, on both of those. I'm sure Stu has some, several friends hopefully coming in for that game as well. So Stu is so fired up for the Hunter Johnson era to kick off at Northwestern. He will be tailgating Friday night wearing the purple in, in the Bay Area, right, Stu? I won't be wearing purple, but I actually am going to be having a bunch of bunch of friends are coming into town for that game, and I'm going to have them over Friday night. So you are entirely inaccurate there. I'm fired up for the game, though a little bit conflicted since it's my alma mater against my current hometown team. Don't worry, Bruce. The atmosphere will be raucous because it's just going to be a sea of purple uh, flooding Stanford's no, it's not. It's probably going to be half empty, but I am looking forward to watching it back to the matter at hand. So Derek, like you said earlier, for the most part, for most of the season, you announce these games 12 days or even six days ahead of time. For this initial announcement, you guys announced games with the exception of like Ohio State, Michigan and Oklahoma, Texas. Most of these games that were announced were for the first three weeks of the season with one, um, Michigan, Wisconsin, the the one game you announced for the September twenty first. What's the cutoff? Like, how do you decide how far into the season you're comfortable slotting the teams before you have to start considering, uh, you know, you know, teams might not after three weeks or four weeks or whatever might not turn out to be the way we expected going into the season. Yeah, so we have to we have to announce the first three weeks. That's across basically all all conferences. But then outside of the first three weeks, it's the weekday games. Those have to be announced. And then the, like the Michigan-Wisconsin game, the Oklahoma-Texas game, and the Ohio State-Michigan game, those were choices by Fox to pre-announce those games, just knowing that those are pretty safe bets that, you know, having the number one pick on those specific dates and, and in those specific conferences that we're probably not going to be going off and not doing a different – we won't want a different game. Um, so why not just announce it early? Let the fans know when the game's going to be. Those are typically those three games are typically some of the higher rated games um, in the country. So just giving the fans enough time to really kind of plan their travel. Um, and then for us internally, for on the Fox, and it's really kind of get around those those kind of big matchups um, and kind of make those as kind of tent poles in our season. Derek, for me, uh, one thing that jumped out at me at the schedule was. The Friday games, especially the ones we have on FS1, seem to be much better than I ever remember a Friday schedule. So it's in uh, September 20th, Utah at USC. That's a really good game. September 27th, Penn State at Maryland. That's an interesting game. Colorado at Oregon. Ohio State at Northwestern is Friday in in mid-October. Why is it my imagination or these just much more attractive games and it, and it includes like when I'm on the road, even the ESPN games Friday night are usually not like this at all. So what has changed? It's not just the Big Ten. Obviously, there's some really good Pac-12 games. Is, it, is there anything different, or am I just noticing it more? No, I think this is this is going to be our our best ever Friday slate um, that we've put out, um, and I think it really help out in terms of just our of our ratings internally. But I I also think it'll be interesting to see how fans tune into these games as well, because they are some high profile games on a Friday night, which in terms of just competitively is, you know, is not as obviously not as competitive as a Saturday game where just all the games are typically played. So I'm curious to see, you know, how those games perform, but I'm also pretty, pretty optimistic that those games are going to be uh, fairly highly rated 
But yes, yeah, so you're right. We work with the conferences to move some of these, all these games that are on Fridays or Thursdays to, to these weekday dates. And, um, and then there's a draft process on these Thursdays and Friday games with, um, with the other networks similar to like we have a Saturday draft process. So, um, you know, luckily we were able to, to select some really good games. And, and I, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be really good for the season. I think, hope it's going to be good for college football as well. Just one more on that, on that Friday night topic. You said you work with the conferences. How, how do you, how do you guys decide which ones are or are not feasible to move? Like you're able to move Ohio State Northwestern. I assume mm-hmm. if it were Ohio State, uh, Penn State, that that wouldn't necessarily fly. Uh, and even with Northwestern, I know Pat Fitzgerald is on record. He's not a fan of Friday night games. So, like, how much sway do you guys have versus the schools and the conferences? Yeah, I mean, for these those two specific games that you mentioned, terms of Ohio State Northwestern and the Penn State Maryland game, what makes those two really kind of work is that uh, both those teams, all the teams that are playing this game, are are all on buys the previous week. So it made a lot of sense to move those games to a Friday, just because there is equal rest. Moving games to Fridays is just is you know, it's tough in terms of preparation for the teams and coaches because there's one last day of preparation. So those two games in particular, um, when we saw the schedule, just really kind of popped out of, you know, we should really, you know, ask the conference um, if, you know, and work with the conference to see if these games would could play on Friday. And, um, you know, lucky for us, we were, we were able to make that happen. All right, Derek, we appreciate, as always, your time and insight. I think it's a great uh, behind-the-curtain look or peek for our audience. And so hopefully we'll have you on down the road. We eagerly await the rest of the schedule, me especially. So uh, thanks for joining us today on the Audible. Thanks, guys. Bruce, I hope you uh, you eat the grasshopper uh, cookie this year. Uh, that's not going course. to ha- That is not going to happen, by the way. And I was shocked at how many people were up at like 1 a.m. Eastern to see that, uh, to see that infamous sideline hit. I just hope you guys <laughs> can... Up, control the weather the poor guys had so many lightning delays the last few years try to maybe assign them to some places where it doesn't rain <laughs> yeah hopefully that works out well for us those are always uh, not good scenarios thanks guys. Yeah. i appreciate it all right we thank derek for joining us and now let's get on to your questions and comments in the mailbag as always if you want to send us anything college football related let us know. You can go to the audiblepod at gmail.com. Sigh, deep breath. I got that right, didn't I? Our first question is from Chuck. Stu and Bruce, extremely tough time for the Auburn family on the untimely sudden death of Rod and Paula Bramlett. As a lot of folks know, Rod was the beloved announcer for Auburn sports. And over a Memorial Day uh, tragic car accident that, that took them from us, they uh, leave behind two children. One is in high school. I believe uh, their older daughter is in college. Uh, so I'm going to get to Chuck's question. I have to write and commend your writer, Justin Ferguson, on his extremely touching, timely, and emotional connecting piece on Rod. In the Mount Rushmore of SEC radio announcers, I believe he has climbed on the summit with the great Larry Munson, of course, of Georgia, Jim Ward from Tennessee, John Forney of Alabama, and Jim Fife also of Auburn. To lighten the mood, here's a question for the two of you. Who is on your Mount Rushmore of college football play-by-play announcers? Great names come to mind, and these are the four he lists. Keith Jackson, Gus Johnson, Ron Franklin, and Vern Lundquist. All right, Stu, I'm going to predict one of the four names that you would definitely have on there who he does not mention went to the same alma mater you did, and 
is now in Vegas. Am I correct? Yes, the great Brent Musburger looking live. I mean, he's called so many of the great college football moments over the last several decades. Obviously, Keith Jackson's on my Rushmore. Brent would be on there as well. I did I did think Ron Franklin was, was very good in his prime. I don't know that I'd have him on there. And I think it's a little too soon to crown Gus. So let's for now say... And by the way, there are probably guys from the early... Like, I, I just can't speak to guys who were, you know, the, the play-by-play guys in the 60s, 70s, etc. So let's just say, Keith Jackson, Brent Musburger, I'll go Vern Lundquist. Mm-hmm. And then for my fourth... Are you going to keep Ron Franklin on there? So I agree with you. To me, Keith Jackson is a absolute no-brainer. Vern also, for me, I like Gus, but I like you. I feel like... For a while, Gus has been known more as a college basketball March Madness revelation kind of guy. But I think he's getting there. I mean, to me, he, you know, if he keeps on this pace, especially with I think he and Joel Clatter terrific together, I think that he will end up there. It's that other part, you know, as you said, Brent, I would agree with you on Brent. Brent just made college football games feel so big and majestic. So that fourth name, are you are you going, Ron Franklin, or where are you going? This may be a little bit of, no, I'm not going Ron Franklin, though. I do think he was very good in his prime. This may be a little bit of recency bias and also just a coincidence because I happened to be watching an old broadcast of the um, Nebraska-Tennessee Orange Bowl, 98 Orange Bowl, Peyton Manning. They get crushed by Nebraska. And Sean McDonough was on the call. It's hard to believe, but Sean McDonough has been doing college football, with the exception of that brief Monday Night Football exodus, for 20 years. And he... I feel like he's got a pretty iconic voice at this time. You think of like the Michigan drop punt snap a few years ago. And his voice has been on a lot of iconic moments. All right, I got one. And I admit I am completely biased on this person. But in terms of voice and big moments and making it feel memorable, I would put Joe Tess on there. That's a tough one. I know we're both really good friends with him. And I do think that... I mean, he was he was absolutely great on college football, but you know now that he's on MNF. What? How, how long do you think he did it? Ten years? Yeah, about that. I mean, but to me, Joe Tess made some Friday Night Magic. And he sure did. He was very good at one of the things that's great about college football is you don't necessarily have to have a huge diehard rooting interest in it. It doesn't necessarily have to be one versus three. Now, certainly with Keith Jackson, it felt like that a lot, and for, for, for Vern, especially, it did too. And I guess Brent also. I think Joe made some made some games that people are like, "Why am I watching this?" Turn out to be, you know, pretty dramatic and uh, and just kind of fun roller coaster rides. Again, I am completely biased with Joe um, on this, so I will say that and kind of duck out. I selfishly hope he will come back to college at some point. I don't want him to, you know, it's it's tough. I want him to do great in his career, and obviously, uh, Monday Night Football is the pinnacle. But selfishly, I, I hope he has a Sean McDonough change of heart and just comes back to college football because I feel like that's where he belongs. Moving on to our next question from Hayden Huffer. Dear Bruce and Stu, love this show. I was wondering, which team or teams would you predict to pull off an upset this season while being a double-digit underdog? Iowa State and Iowa pull it off at home semi-regularly but might be too good to be large underdogs more than once this season. And picking against Texas used to be a good pick, but they seem too good now. What about maybe Virginia, or I could see Chip Kelly and UCLA catching some people off guard as a big underdog, too. Any other picks? 
I'm actually, as we're talking, working on this state of the program on UCLA and so spent a decent amount of time talking to folks there. I would think that they're a pretty good bet to pull off a big upset if you look at what they're what they're going to face. And I know that everybody inside the program feels like they're going to be a lot better than they were last year. Remember, at the end of the year, they were playing pretty well. They were running the ball pretty well. Again, their schedule is interesting. Get this. This is a stat I'm going to have in our uh, – in our piece that runs next week in the first four weeks of the season, they play opponents that had a combined record of 41 and 12. That's pretty staggering to say. And I, I suspect, and two of those games are on the road. Cincinnati's on the road and Wazoo is on the road. My hunch is they will knock off one of those three teams that they play. Now the fourth team in there is San Diego state. Who's been traditionally very good, had a slightly down year last year. They also play Oklahoma at home. Oklahoma. So it's Oklahoma, Cincinnati, Washington State. I doubt there'll be a double-digit underdog of Cincinnati. Uh, I doubt they Cincinnati will be. We, should, very good. we probably should know that by now. I but I would, they definitely will be against Oklahoma. I would think they'd be at Washington State. Although with the uncertainty. I don't think they will be at no, Washington No, you're right. State. They won't be with, but, with the uncertainty at quarterback there. I think, that's a good, I think that's a good one. I don't have any problems with Virginia. I don't really have a sense of whether they'll be... You know, who in the ACC would they be big underdogs to? Another one I'd throw in there also from the Pac-12 is Arizona. Not that I think they're going to be a great team this year, but Khalil Tate back and healthy, you know, just that alone gives them a bit of a giant killer possibility, uh, at least on occasion. Uh, to, to answer your question about who would Virginia be, the only team I could see Virginia possibly being a double-digit underdog to, they play at Notre Dame in late September. Well, yeah, uh, that's a good, and, that's a definite candidate. And, and other than that, they play at Miami, and Miami has a really, really soft schedule. So Miami, but I don't think Miami in early October is going to be. I don't think because Virginia was pretty good. It wasn't like Virginia was three and nine last year. They they won eight games. So I don't know if they're going to be thought as 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 lowly as that. So those are those are our picks. Uh, also, one other one. It's not really original because they just did this last year, but Purdue. You know, obviously pulled off one of the shockers of the season last year against Ohio State. I think they're going to be better than they were last season, but still, obviously, the kind of team that's a double-digit underdog when they play some of the big-name teams in the Big Ten. All right, this next question I really liked. Uh, it, was, it was a fun question to kind of kick around before we reconvened. From Michael Harrington. Stu and Bruce, love both the Audible and the Athletic. Thank you, Michael. So a coach's gone game. Which of the following coaches will still be in their current job in three years or five years. Doesn't matter whether you think it's from retiring, changing jobs, or being fired. I've picked two coaches from each Power Five conference that most intrigue me. But of course, you may have others you debate. And so now before we get to his choices, I mean he five years is a long time. I was just gonna say, I mean, at the end of the day, most college coaches will not still be in the same place in five years. Yeah. But so we let's, agree to do it three years? Yes, and when I say three years, I'm saying we'll not be there for the 20, we'll be in the same job for the 2021 season. Okay, so that means... Um, yes, that's correct. Okay, so his options are for the Pac-12, this one's an obvious one, Clay Helton. The other one, not so obvious. Wait, wait, Mike wait, Lee. I, I actually don't think that's what he means. He's, he's saying in three years, so I think he's saying they last three more seasons. Okay, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I three years is a long time. Let's just do two years. Okay. 
that that to makes it a little more meatier. So he has Clay Helton and Mike Leach not being where they are in the Pac-12. In the Big 12, he has Lincoln Riley and Les Miles. In the Big 10, Jim Harbaugh and Kirk Ferentz. In the SEC, whoa, Nick Saban and Dan Mullen. In the ACC, he has Willie Taggart and Mac Brown. Uh, so clearly Michael is not buying into the older national title coaches <laughs> coming back and having having a successful next run. Of, of the guys he listed, the one that most surprises me, where the one I feel like is most likely still going to be there, is Dan Mullen. I don't know where Dan Mullen would leave from Florida unless the next two years, unless he has some kind of incident that caused him to be forced out, which maybe Michael knows something no one else does, or that it would just complete the bottom would fall out it wasn't like he had a pretty solid first year so i don't know what it would be again now he's saying three years from now and we're saying two but that was my context so you want to give your coaches first or you want me to do it let's go by you context. want me to go coach by coach let's go uh you can weigh in on that but also let's let's start on the acc alphabetically okay and say which two coaches do you think will not be in their spot in 2021 I think you're making this into a game he didn't intend it to be. Okay, well, why don't we do evaluate mine then, and you can you can tell me, and then let's go through his list. Then we'll do that first. Okay. Uh, Clay Helton, I am in agreement. If I had to pick two two in the Pac-12, I would take Clay Helton on that choice. To you? not be there, yeah. Yes, Mike Leach. I don't know where Mike Leach is going to go. He is not. He's not an easy person to fix up on a blind date in this case. And yet, so, I kind of feel like he won't be there in three years. You do not think, where will he go? I don't know, but I just, it just seems like, okay, so he's been there since 2012. So this will be his eighth. You really, we're talking about, will Mike Leach make it to year 11 at Washington State? I kind of don't think so. So what are these scenarios? That Cliff Kingsbury knocks it out of the park with the Cardinals, and then there's an even, you know, more embrace for the air raid and that, and some NFL owner is going to go, you know what? Give me that guy. I'll I'll roll the dice with him. That seems to me to be slightly more likely at this point than another. You know, Tennessee was about to hire him until John Curry got booted out of that search. So is there another Tennessee-type school that's going to come calling? Possibly. But it does seem like the infatuation with the air raid might get him a call to the NFL. Okay. Just to weigh in on, on this. Okay, so the Big 12, he has Lincoln Riley and Les Miles. I assume he thinks Lincoln would go to the NFL. And Les would go back to Hollywood, I guess. I don't know what he thinks. I would agree with him on Les Miles. The name that I think is more likely to end up in the NFL than Lincoln Riley in this window is actually Matt Rule from Baylor. Yeah, I mean, I think people just assumed that Lincoln Riley, you know, first of all, the main rumor last year was the Browns. I think he likes being a college head coach. I think he's got a really good setup at Oklahoma. I don't think he's looking to rush out of there. So I would say he's still there. And Les Miles, you know, I think you and I are pretty much on the same page there. That, that was, that, that's going to be a dumpster fire. So whether it's two years, three years, four, I just don't think he'll be there very long. You think he's going to look at him in the mirror and go, what have I got myself into once the losses start to come? Or they'll just fire him because it'll be such a train wreck. I don't think it's going to be that. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I do think it's going to be a different reality than what, you know, he knew in Baton Rouge. I just think he's went completely, you know, it's a complete 180 from where he was. Perhaps a good, maybe recent comp could be something like what Mark Wick just went through. Like, I'm not saying it's impossible that he'll have some success there. It just doesn't seem like a long-term situation where the program's going to get a lot better. So... 
you know, Mark Rick kind of saw the writing on the wall and hung it up three seasons in. Maybe could be that way with him. Yeah, I mean, the difference is Mark Rick got a a, a much better job. Like you can win at Miami. Yeah, and he had a ten and O team. So I'm not saying the programs are similar, just maybe the trajectory of that tenure. Stu, I want to make a prediction. The most comfortable item of clothing that you own in your wardrobe is going to be free fly underwear. What do you think? Close. My free fly shorts. Very well. I say this. They are the most comfortable underwear I have, and the shorts are are great. They are very, very user-friendly. makes it sound a little weird. But I just think that they you can wear them in almost anything. You can wear them. They're not necessarily workout shorts, but they feel like they are. It's just a great product, and I'm glad to have FreeFly as a sponsor of this podcast. So why don't you tell our friends more about them? Well, here's the background on FreeFly. The team behind FreeFly are a wife and husband duo of Nike marketers and her Montana fishing guide brother. They identified a big problem. Outdoor clothing was too complicated and too uncomfortable. Together, they quit their jobs and made it their mission to create the most comfortable shirt imaginable. FreeFly's bamboo clothing has natural UPF sun protection, wicks away moisture and won't hold odor. The clothes fit well and come in a natural color palette with subtle branding. From fishing to hitting the gym or lounging around the house, this stuff is great. FreeFly is now my go-to clothing. You have to check it out today. So, Bruce, as you know, Father's Day is just right around the corner. It is. It's creeping up on us quick. Gear up for adventures with Dad. Get 20% off when you visit freeflyapparel.com and use promo code AUDIBLE. That's freeflyapparel.com, promo code AUDIBLE. Okay, now it gets it's going to get interesting. Here. Yes, it is. The big, the big Ten, Jim Harbaugh and Kirk Ferentz. Jim Harbaugh is either going to lead this program to glory or he's going to have to formulate some sort of exit plan. Uh, I, you just did the Michigan State of the Program and a big Josh Gaddis feature, and I got the sense that you are very bullish on the Wolverines. I think they have a window now to, to make a run in it. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, like the Josh Gaddis story was an interesting one to work on because I know him, but I didn't really, I'd never really drilled down to talk to a lot of people who've worked with him and know him. And his reputation is, is something inside of football where that story was up for about, it hadn't been up on our site for an hour. And I heard from three different football coaches Two who'd worked with him who I hadn't spoken to and a third who I didn't know who even knew him who knew him from like the clinic circuit and talked about their relationship and everybody raves about him. You know, after the story went up, one of the guys that I had interviewed, I tried to interview for the story. He was away and got back to me and, you know, we added it into the story a couple hours after it had been up was Dean Hood, who was like one of Urban Meyer's childhood best friends, who is now the linebacker coach of Kentucky, was a longtime defense coordinator at Wake Forest. And he said, in 35 years in coaching, Josh Gaddis is the smartest football player I've ever been around, and it's not even close. And you start hearing some of these kinds of stories, and people are like, well, he's never called plays. He was a receiver's coach. And then you talk to Joe Moorhead, and this is in the story where he's talking about, he called the game-winning play when we beat when we beat Iowa. It was an adjustment he saw. He made it. And then I was able to find on YouTube, fortunately, you know, the ABC uh, or the ESPN camera crew actually was in the huddle and you could kind of see Josh Gaddis motioning to Joe Moorhead what this adjustment they want to call. They have a really good offensive line. I think they'll be still, you know, I, I think they should still have enough personnel. Now we'll see what adjustments Don Brown made because at the end of last year, they were not playing 
great. They did in the first 10 games and not in the last two. But I do think at some point in the next two years, Jim Harbaugh is going to get them in the playoff. Wow. I feel like you are going to single-handedly cause a surge in season ticket sales. Although, for all, maybe Michigan has a wait list and all that. But you are, you are giving the fans a whole lot of reason for hope after what was a pretty dismal end to last season. My money would be on both those guys, Harbaugh and Ferentz, still being there. Ferentz has got like the ultimate setup there, as we know. He gets a new guaranteed year every time he wins seven games. So he's got no reason to step down. And, you know, that's a short window. I think Harbaugh will have enough success to stay. Will, it be, will he still be getting the overrated talk? Possibly. But uh, I think he'll still be there. One quick thing, though, related to your Gattis story. There was, you had a little nugget in there that caught my eye. And I thought, huh, this could become interesting this season. If for if if Steve Sarkeesian doesn't have a great year as OC, if if feels like Tua's regressing or something like that, and if Josh Gaddis is kicking butt at Michigan, uh, you had a nugget in there that that Saban basically told him, you know, yeah, I'm not gonna make you the play. I'm not. I don't want a first time play caller. I'm not gonna make you a play caller. And so he went to Michigan. That could be interesting. Yeah, and I don't know. You know, Josh retold. You know, told me that story. What I don't know is, did Nick Saban take it as, because obviously he just had Tosh Lupoy on defense as a first-time defensive play caller. Now, there was a lot of involvement from uh, Pete Golding, who had been a defensive play caller at UTSA and some other places, and he was very involved in it on the defensive side. But, of course, Nick Saban is a defensive guy. He's not, by trade, an offensive guy. So does he look at it and go, okay, well, I can work around it if I have an inexperienced defensive play caller, whereas on offense, it's not not something I want to get into. I I don't know the the thought process behind that. But, um, you know, for some of the people I talked to, I remember John Shoup, who's some, uh, you know, Big Ten fans will remember and North Carolina fans. He was the first person to hire Gaddis when he was on Butch Davis' staff. He was North Carolina's offense coordinator. And he said, you know, there's adjustments, as Joe Moore had talked about, but he said in my first year as an offense coordinator, I was with the Bears and we went 11 and three in the NFL. He said, so, you know, if there's an adjustment, but you never know until you're in the middle of it. But he goes, I, I he, and this is Shoup's words. He goes, I'm, I bet that Michigan offense will not underachieve with Josh Gaddis. He was that bullish on, on this guy. So, so there's reason for excitement at the very least. Now, back to Michael's question or the way I kind of framed it. The two guys I suspect will not be there in a couple of years in their, at their current schools uh, were on the opposite end of the spectrum. And that was Chris Ash at Rutgers, who's got such an uphill battle there, and Lovey Smith at Illinois. I just uh, I think two years is a long time when you're when you're struggling at that level. Yeah, I mean, we could go through all the obvious uh, hot seat coaches. Not many of those guys end up, you know, pulling it out. Nick Saban, Dan Mullen, I think we'll both be there. You know, people keep waiting for Saban to slow down. It doesn't seem like that's happening. I would agree with you. I don't like Willie Taggart's chances. Uh, it's one of those situations where, now he has rescued himself from some pretty deep first-year holes before, but it's one of those situations where the first season was so bad. And yes, people know, I think, have a fuller picture now of how bad things got under Jimbo worst APR in the, in all of FBS. Um, but I just, it's going to be hard to fully dig out of that at a place where, and we've talked about this. I know we have before. Like if you get to, if even if they continue to get better, you know, the, the standard of Florida state's national titles. So what's the best case scenario for Willie Taggart by year three, nine and four, 
I just, uh, I don't see that happening. Mac Brown, you know, I have mixed feelings about that one. I'm a little more confident in him than I am in Miles just because of the staff he put together. Like, if you, that's the other thing, right? With, with Les Miles, whatever you think of him as a head coach, I think, I don't think he, I think he thought he was going to be able to get more guys that he wanted on that staff. You look at that staff, it's pretty underwhelming. Mac Brown got a really good staff at UNC. I don't disagree with that. I think what, to me, is what's harder is what he inherited. You know, there's still players at North Carolina, whereas Kansas, I'm not saying they don't have anybody, but just it is such, an, such a you know, monumental climb to just be competitive in that league, whereas you know, North Carolina, I think you are much closer to it resources wise. Yeah. That it's just so much of a tougher job. Like if, if you flipped it and you put Mac Brown in Kansas and Les Miles in North Carolina, I would, you know, give Les Miles a lot better chance to survive it, you know, over the last couple of years. And I wouldn't give Mac Brown much of a chance to do it. I think that's true. It's not impossible. Somebody's gonna eventually dig Kansas out of that that hole. I actually think that David Beatty was start you were starting to see an upswing there. I understand Jeff Long wanted to come in, get his own guy. Puka Williams was obviously a huge recruit and I just I ended up kind of randomly watching some of their game against Oklahoma last year. They ended up putting up forty on Oklahoma. And it just felt like, you know, yeah, they, I don't remember what the final record was. It still wasn't very good. But that at least they're starting to to make some headway here. Anyway, so in the end, the only ones we it seems like between you and me, the only ones that we feel pretty confident won't be there in two to three years are Helton and Miles. Yes. Or how, I don't know, what do you think about Taggart? I think Taggart has a decent chance to get it turned around. As you mentioned, his, you know, his, he's not at Oregon, but the other stops, he struggled early on, and he struggled a lot at USF, and he got it flipped at a time almost nobody would get it flipped. I think he will get it going here. I mean, look, there's a lot of controversy behind taking Kendall Bryles with the baggage he has. But in terms of on the field, what what I think you'll see, I think that offense will be better. And now, at the end of the day, like you said, the standard is really high at FSU. So year three, you know, is he nine and four? Again, Clemson is at a different place than they were at any time in Florida State's run since they've been in the league, right? From the time Florida State got in the league, yeah, they've had some good players, but Clemson wasn't anything like what Clemson is now. And that's a different thing. Now, if Miami gets going, then it just makes it that much harder. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say if it's I, – I could see it being 50-50, to be honest, on that. Yeah, no, there's no question we got a lot more good questions we need to get to. All right, Stu, next question is from Philip Story. Love the show, guys. With the announcement last week that Bama will play a two-for-one with South Florida, I was wondering if you foresee this becoming a more common and even more even becoming a possibility in situations where both teams are from Power 5 conferences. As a Georgia fan, I enjoy this since it would create some interesting road trips to places that may not be a high-profile enough for a home-and-home, i.e. Northwestern, Boston College, Duke, etc. Stu, what do you think of this? I hadn't really thought of that before as a possibility. Now, there would be a certain level of pride involved, just like UCF is letting pride and stubbornness keep it from doing what USF's doing. I mean, I assume a Power 5 school would not feel great about doing a two-for-one, but at the same time, 
If you, but other than that, I mean, if Northwestern had the chance to play three games against Alabama and one of them's at Ryan Field, come on, you got to do that. The question is whether, I think the question is whether Alabama would be interested in that because, you know, they're scheduling out home and homes right now with Notre Dame, Texas, et cetera. Do they really want to commit three games to a less prestigious school? I don't know. One thing that's one thing that's dictating a lot of this is that to to pay a, a Sunbelt team to come play at your stadium one time, the cost of that is almost is risen to almost two million dollars for one game. So that's one incentive for doing the two for one is you don't have to pay those guarantees. But I don't know. I I I would like to see it. I think that would be really cool. I don't know whether either or both parties would go for it. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into this. I wonder how many schools would look at it and go, if you're if you're Alabama, saying not only is there a relationship to the AD at USF, but also saying, wow, that's an area where we could we could be connected to. It would only help us that much more. It's not like Alabama needs any more help recruiting in, in that part of the state, but that just adds your visibility a little bit more too. And that's a that's another plus to it. I would also just point out that there's a reason North Northwestern. Duke, Stanford all play each other a lot. You know, they, they want to play those other uh, quote-unquote academic schools. So I don't think they're going to stop playing each other to suddenly start doing a lot of two-for-ones against big-name SEC or Big 12 or whoever programs. Yes. Next question. David Crowley, Bruce and Stu, huge fan of the Audible. Thank you, David. As a Louisville fan, I am still in shock from the complete catastrophe that was last year's 2-10 and ten season. Sure, Bobby Petrino seemed to give up, but it was incredible just how quickly the bottom fell out of the program the moment Lamar Jackson left. My question, can you think of any similar cases of a program being so reliant on a single transcendent player such that it reached all-time highs with him and then immediately all-time lows the moment he departed? I can't Stu, think I... of anything quite that sudden and drastic from one year to the next. I can. Oh, okay, go ahead. I have two. One that's one that popped out of me, and the other that I thought about a little, and then it was like, yeah, this is an interesting frame of it. The one that popped out at me, and we're talking transcendent players, and Stu, who is my all-time god of a college football player, you know this by now, as our listeners do, that would be Cam Newton. So they won 14 games in a national title with him. He leaves, and they go 13 and 14 the next two years, and they have a coaching change. Well, and, in, and specifically, I think they went from that to five and seven to three and nine. SEC, yeah. Well, the other one is a little bit more nuanced, and it can't. You know, I thought about it, especially living out here. Sam Darnold, you know, he was the biggest reason why I think Clay Helton had success in his first two full years, and then he left, and the bottom fell out last year. If you look at Sam Darnold's record as a starter. He was 20 and four. If you take a look at the 12 games before Sam Darnold was the starter and the 12 games after, USC's record is 11 and 13. Now, obviously, they didn't reach like all time highs under Sam Darnold because USC had won national titles without him, and it wasn't like he led them to a national title, but he did lead them to a to a Pac-12 title and a Rose Bowl championship. And he was a great player. And without him, the bottom kind of fell out. I mean, they were pretty awful last year at five and seven. So those would be my best two examples. And the only one I thought of is not a one-year thing. It was more of a two-year thing, although you mentioned one like that is Oregon. Oregon, after Mariota left, you know, the national title game with his last year. The next year, they were able to get Vernon Adams in, and that kind of 
closed the gap a little or, or kept them afloat. But then once he was gone, you know, four and eight, getting blown out by everybody, Mark Halford just fired. It's not so much, I mean, tell me if you agree, it's not so much that, that like, they had to have these guys to win. It's more that if, if you have a really transcendent quarterback like that, it helps mask some issues. Like, it was apparent that, and Sam, I mean, I can remember in Sam Darnold's last season how many times he was running for his life. It was clear that um, they had issues on the line of scrimmage. He was just able to compensate for that. And then once he was out of there and then breaking in a freshman quarterback, a lot harder to win like that. Um, same with Oregon. You know, they, they, uh, their defense just cratered uh, at the end of Helfrich's time there. But it was easier to still win some games when you had number one passer in the country, number one passer, rated passer in the country. With Louisville, I just think it was, I mean, <laughs> I almost predicted how that would go when he was hired. He's such a, Bobby Petrino is such a terrible recruiter that by the time you get to year four, the bottom falls out. So it was the combination of obviously Lamar Jackson was a transcendent player, but during that time that he was there, their talent level was just falling and falling and falling. And then once you take him out of there, that was the end. I also think it was not just that he's such a terrible recruiter. I think it's just that from a human being standpoint, he wears people down and sucks the life and the joy out of a lot of things. And this, I you know certainly I went to Louisville for a story of being around Scott Satterfield and you talk to some of the players and it's like the dark cloud is lifted. And I think after a while that wears guys down and especially when you don't have success, that's why the bottom not only fell out to be two and 10, they weren't just losing games. They were getting blown out of the building by like 30 points a game on average. So I think that's, that's really part of it. It's, it's one thing to be a bad recruiter. It's another thing to be a bad recruiter who's seen as like, you know, a, a bad human being or a bad, you know, a bad leader. Also wasn't able to retain good assistant coaches because of that. So, you know, ended up with half his family, I think, was the coaching staff by the end. Yeah. All right. We actually do have a lot more great emails from you guys. So if you didn't hear it this week, doesn't mean it won't come back possibly in the future, next week maybe. Um, but we did want to bring up, remember the last time I was on with you, we got a pretty interesting question about relegation and promotion and we both admitted that we don't follow international soccer closely enough to fully understand it, but we did do that exercise where we relegated the worst Power 5 teams and brought up the best group of 5 teams. We did make a huge oversight. So Manny Amores, among others, called us out. Fellas, love the podcast and listen regularly, but got a bone to pick with you all on the last one. I expect this from Disco Stew, but Bruce, how do you all include Houston and Cincy in the hypothetical Power 5 relegation but leave out UCF from being promoted? We have no good explanation for it. We just somehow went through that and never mentioned UCF. Wow. Yeah, that was an oversight. No you word, and I no talked word. about it right afterward, like the next day after it went live. And I think what happened was we picked Cincinnati to go to the Big Ten. And then at that point, I think, at least me, I think at that point I just put that conference aside. And when we got to the SEC and ACC, I was thinking Sunbelt. Whoops. Obviously, UCF should have been. Uh, ideally in the SEC, just because SEC fans hate them so much, that would be great. Yeah, or or uh, look, I mean, they could have been in the Big 12. They could have been in the ACC. They should be somewhere, though, especially when they've won as much as they've won the last two years. And finally, Dave Preston. So I did learn from reading these emails, I did learn a lot more about relegation and promotion. I can't believe that uh, you, it really truly is like, you know, if, if, uh, if a school, a college went from the Big Ten to the um, American like their budget, they would lose $40, 50000000 million like overnight. And apparently that does happen. 
uh, in soccer, and they have to cut loose some of their best players. Anyway, but I thought this one was, was really unique. Because remember we talked about relegating Louisville and promoting Appalachian State, and okay, which school would Scott Satterfield end up at? Well, there's an actual version. This comes from Dave Preston. He points out there was an actual version of this in Dutch soccer this year where the coach of a lower league team accepted a job with a higher league team, and then the two teams faced one another in the playoff. So if the coach with his current team had, if his coach with his current team wins, then his the school he the, the team he was going to was going to be relegated and vice versa. So the current coach of Cambor, Appalachian State in your analogy, took the job with I'm going to not know how to pronounce this, Day Grafschaft, Louisville in your analogy. <laughs> but now they are playing in the playoffs. So you might want to, this was sent to us several weeks ago. So here's what happened. The team his the coach's team won. So his team is going to stay his his team at the time was going to stay in the in the big leagues and the team he's going to was going to stay relegated. And he said, that's a good thing. Quote, if Cambor had won, I would have congratulated them and given them a hand. But it is not good for the clubs to be promoted now. It'll take two to two and a half years for the new stadium to arrive. It needs time. In two and a half years, you can build a new team. Promotion is often not so difficult, but staying in it is much more difficult with the possibilities that we have. Can you imagine if Scott Satterfield was like, no, nah, that's fine. We'll stay. We'll stay in the Sun Belt for another two, two and a half years till we can build up our roster. Ouch. Yeah. That. Um, I don't know. It's a fun exercise to go through, but obviously, college football is his own animal, and um, I don't know. It's just I, it's I, fun. It's a fun game to play. Obviously, it's not. I mean, you know, you can, it, that would never happen in real life. We're talking about universities and budgets that fund not just the football program, but every other team in the in the athletic department. So. Needless to say, that would that would not work in reality. No, but I think it would also make. I, I'm debating whether I just introduced. This. I was like, could you imagine how much cheating incentives would create by this? If people were in like a panic, well, if we don't, you know, immediately win, it's not just their jobs; they would also get relegated. Um, yeah. 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 Needless to say, I think this only works in the pros where you're not recruiting, right? I don't even know. We're gonna get more emails about that too. I bet. Okay, and you can send them to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And like I said, we still have more in the bank, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't send some more this week. We'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octave. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And subscribe to The Athletics if you haven't done so already. You can try it for free, seven-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial. So come on, get-